Rafi Zakaria is an author, attorney, political philosopher, and human rights activist. In her most recent book, Fail, she conducts a philosophical investigation into the object based on her own personal experience. I sat down with Rafia to discuss common misconceptions about the veil, as well as current controversies and debates about it taking place in America and around the world. We talk about how the veil is perceived as both an object of oppression and an instrument of feminist empowerment, and how its various meanings challenge ideas of patriarchy and Islamophobia. Take a listen. This is the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and I'm here today with Rafia Sakaria, the author of Veil, a book in our object lesson series. Welcome, Rafia. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for having me. So what interested you in the first place to write a book about the veil? You know, there, there were a lot of different factors. I think the biggest one being that as a Muslim woman in America, particularly one that, you know, every now and then did public speaking events. You know, I worked at the time for a Muslim women's shelter. I mean, the the shelter was for all women, but I worked for a particular program geared towards Muslim women. You know, I found that among the larger public, there were a lot of questions about what I thought about the veil. The rest of most of these questions tended to be the fact that I tended to be this expectation that I would have a yes or no answer on the will. So either I supported it or I didn't support it. And if, you know, and given the fact that I didn't wear the veil at the time myself, I didn't wear the job, the assumption tended to be that I I didn't support the right of other Muslim women to wear the veil since I was making a choice in the other direction. So I wanted to write a book that would encompass all of the diversity of the veil and also all of the complexity, well, or not all, but at least a significant amount of the complexities of it so that people who are curious about this question would understand why I couldn't just give them a straight answer, a yes or no answer, a one paragraph answer about it. And I also wanted for people to realize that considering the veil has to go beyond the scriptural controversy around whether a veil is mandatory or not and situate the veil in our current political, social moments. So so I had all of these disparate kind of motivations and I wanted you know, the the object lesson series actually is perfect because it gave me both a kind of independence in terms of genre where I could include personal experience as well as cultural critique and, and sort of guide people who wanted to know more towards different more extensive and comprehensive sources uh, about the subject, but, you know, at the same time in itself be a discrete discussion about why the issue is as complex as it is. 
And it is complex. I mean, certainly people have very emotional reactions about the veil, as you were just discussing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we're recording this interview the week of what, what has been truly one of the most shocking speaking engagements that I've that I've ever had in my life, and I've done hundreds of speaking engagements over the years. And, you know, this Monday, I was invited by a group, a student group at Columbia University to speak about the veil. And I I knew that my inter, like my, the co-discussant was a woman who has been an anti-veil campaigner in Iran that then moved to the United States 10 years ago and has continued her fairly militant campaign, militant not obviously in terms of her means, but just, you know, in, in terms of her position, campaign against the veil. I didn't really think it would be particularly contentious for the simple reason that I, you know, I, I believe in the right, as is clear from the book, in the right of women to wear whatever they want. And so in the fact that the Iranian regime imposes the veil on women, I oppose that edict as much as I oppose the headscarf ban or the burkini ban in France. So I didn't expect it to be controversial. But once the event got underway, it was clear to me that it was it was focused around this idea that one of the positions, so you know, the position the anti-veil position is really the quote unquote correct position. And that I'm kind of the also ran of the event. And even that, quite honestly, didn't bother me. It didn't bother me to to the point where we got into a discussion of Islamophobia because we were discussing whether this particular campaign, which while is geared towards women in Iran, you know, she's she's carrying it out over here in the United States and on forums such as Fox News. And at that point, I, I had to interject as to what she feels the impact of that is on American Muslim women who wear the veil, who currently face the highest incidence of hate crimes in the United States. You know, and it got, it just, just literally flew. The whole thing kind of blew up at that point. And my co-discussant got so upset about this discussion on Islamophobia and and this idea that advocacy, her advocacy within the U.S., that she should have to consider the fact that her advocacy in the U.S. is having an impact on American Muslim women who choose to wail. She just got up and, and left, stormed out of the room. So, you know, goes to show you, I mean, this is one iteration of a lot of, you know, very testy discussions around the veil that take place all the time. Because, you know, in, in, in most cases, as I discuss in the book, there are a lot of different meanings attached to it. And contesting those meanings often ends up being 
you know, reduced to either, for instance, like, a, you know, we give the example of France is that, okay, well, if you insist on wearing the headscarf, then you're not embracing your French identity and you're not, impo- you know, embracing the French state that, you know, where you were born. And so there's all of these ideas uh, incipient in the idea of the veil and the idea of the veil or really, I would say, just the object of the veil and what it confers on on the person that is wearing it or not wearing it. I mean, absolutely. I think at the heart of that is that this is a contested object that manifests very differently in various cultural contexts. And, you know, it is also an object that takes on various extremely diverse forms. And I think sometimes it's hard because people don't even really know what object they're actually arguing about. So, I mean, in your object lesson series, or how you would approach this, approach the veil? I mean, how would you define it as an object in all of its iterations? You know, as an object itself, I think it has the ability to, I mean, and, and this is true to some extent of all objects, but I think the veil in particular has this ability to have almost like a, a chemical reaction, you know, so to speak, with the society or the culture in which, in which it exists and, and to produce a meaning that is unique in that sense. And I wouldn't even just say society and culture, but also the individual mm-hmm. who is wearing it. So in that sense, it is, you know, it's, it's an object that if you see it by itself, you know, or if, if it were possible to see it outside of society or culture or the individual wearing it is nothing really. I mean, it could, it would, it would just be a square piece of cloth in, you know, in the case of the headscarf, for instance, a cloth that could be used for all sorts of other things. So I think that it is definitely an object that gets its meaning from its use and its interaction with all the multidimensional factors around it. So it, it is in, in that sense, it can transform its meaning. Even if you, t- for instance, if you took a, a veiled woman in Iran, she would have a different meaning as opposed to, say, a veiled woman in France or Belgium. So, you know, and, and in that case, you're just changing society and culture and politics, and even if it's the same veiled woman. And I think that a lot of women who do wear the veil find that to be, I definitely think that that's something that it isn't something that women necessarily expect. So, for instance, if you have a woman, you know, say my grandmother, who covers her hair in Pakistan, and she, you know, is just comfortable with covering her hair. And, mm-hmm. and, and has done so. And, and in a sense, doing so has, uh, you know, accompanying it is this idea of being a, a good sort of compliant citizen. And if you got that same woman and you brought her onto, say, the streets of a Midwestern city in the United States, or even say New York City, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that there's going to be so so she for her in her mind she's just doing what she's always done you know there's 
she's comfortable with it. She's she's always done it. Her mother did it. And then, you know, you have everyone who is seeing her interpreting her action, her action of wearing the veil as the opposite of what it would be, for instance, in Pakistan. So here it's a political statement and even you could argue a form of dissent or resistance against the mainstream kind of, you know, ethic of, of not covering your hair. So I think that those, those aspects are, are factors that a lot of people don't understand. I do think in many cases that that I mean, in terms of the divisiveness, I, I think that it's the political aspect of it that has been at the forefront. And the reason for that is obviously, I mean, at, at least obvious to me, is quite simply the fact that any orders, whether they are for the veiling of women or against the veiling of women, tend to have, you know, a, a very visible impact on the Muslim population of the country. And in countries where everybody or, you know, large percentages are Muslim, that means that, you know, you you suddenly have half the population either all covered up or not covered up, as they used to be, perhaps. So, you know, in terms of making political statements, these are edicts that have high yields because whoever is, is, is issuing the edict can have a visible symbol of their political power. So they might not have, you know, created institutions or infiltrated institutions or taken over most of the country or city or whatever. But in issuing an edict like that, and with people, you know, kind of following that edict, that's the impact of it. So you obviously have the Taliban rolling into Afghanistan and immediately imposing the will, because that means that, you know, the, here you have a visible imprint of their control on what people can see every day and, and, and what conditions are attached to women's visibility every day. And I mean, on, on the other side, I guess, when the Shah Farhan came into power, he ordered his wife and, and in turn all Iranian women to, to remove the veil and to stop wearing the veil. So, so then that had its, its own impact in terms of the fact that, uh, you know, con- that this was now a different condition on women's visibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting to me that throughout the book, I mean, obviously you can approach the veil from so many different, through so many different lenses. I mean, you could choose to do it through a religious lens or more of a sociocultural lens, but you choose to approach the veil from mostly an aesthetic standpoint about how it exists as a visible object in public spaces. How and why did you choose to focus on aesthetic considerations? Well, first of all, because I, I felt that it, that, that there was so much emphasis on all the other factors that you mentioned that the function or the aesthetic of the veil as an object was, was not considered or was, or, or was rarely considered. So, so for instance, people were not considering the impact that veiling has between the power differentials in a particular space, or really even 
you know, within the distribution of public and private space. So, you know, I begin the book with the instance in the hospital waiting room in Karachi when uh, my mother was in the hospital and, and having this fairly small space that both men, because, you know, the veil is not required in Pakistan and there's no legal, there's no genders segregation, legal gender segregation in Pakistan. So you have a private hospital and, you know, they have the one waiting room for the, you know, for people whose patients are in the intensive care unit. And we're all then sort of supposed to share this space, men and women of, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds and education and whatnot. And, you know, and so you have in a country where women are not, uh, you know, they're not in all public space and they, they are relegated by and large to the private sphere. You know, you have, you have a situation where this, this kind of negotiation of space must take place. And I had, I mean, I had my head covered. So in that sense, I was veiled in that situation. But there was another woman who I'll never forget who had this long, you know, essentially a full, both a face veil and then a full, what we call an abaya. Uh, you know, it's like a head to toe garment that covers your clothes and um, is very loose so that the form of your body can't be seen. And while I felt very apologetic within, not apologetic as in the sense that I was apologizing for myself to be there, but I, I definitely, I guess a better word would be defensive of my presence and of the space and that I was inhabiting and the fact that I didn't have any other male relative with me so that I felt like my space was kind of, you know, anyone who wanted more space or wanted space at all could kind of take it over. And and that's where I learned this very unexpected lesson of this woman who was just completely, I mean, you would think that she was in her own living room because, <laughs> you know, uh, being, because being covered up completely not only could we not see who she was but she was having loud conversations you know she would eat she would pace she would really just do whatever she felt like and and there was such a freedom to her to her movements that I hadn't really you don't really see in Pakistan in among uncovered women that it it forced me to consider how this woman had essentially created private space for herself in this semi-public, you know, this this room full of strangers because she, you know, she she ha- had suddenly like she had done something. I realized with the power dynamic, she had also done something in terms of just creating a partition, a physical and aesthetic partition between herself and everybody else, which is, you know, I mean, that's what everybody wants in spaces like that, right? Because, I mean, why else, you know, do, if you, if you fly, you know, uh, on an airplane, the, the people, the, the best seats are the ones that, that allow the, the passenger to draw, 
either a curtain or have some kind of a partition between them, them and the next passenger. It, it really was an epiphany for me in considering this idea of the veil as, as being something more than just the politics and the religious, you know, prescriptions and 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 this is something particularly hard to sort of grasp in Pakistan where the religious the religious controversy on whether or not veiling is required kind of overshadows everything else you know so yeah that's where the book started and and once I started to kind of look into that I could see and and not to say that the the depictions in so is the art of Shirin Nishat, who's this Iranian photographer and artist who did a series, I think it's called Women of Allah, that I mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. where, you know, it involves veiled women and this kind of, but, but you know, even, even though that she's definitely making a political statement within in those photographs, there is also this realization that I had and that I, I think a lot of people who would see these photographs of women wearing the full black head-to-toe chadari would have is that the arrangement of negative and positive space within those photographs is altered in a way that perhaps no other object could alter it in that way. So, so you know, so your rules of, of aesthetics and of photography and of space are also transformed even in representations of that sort of veil. Those are, I think, a couple of examples. There's, there's many others in the book, I think, that illustrate this, this point that, that this is an object that can transform aesthetics and space and the consideration of space in a way that is is I would say probably unique absolutely I mean the the first part of your book in the hospital is really striking to me for that reason but also the part where you talk about a Muslim woman in an airport and how you know there's it's in this in this world of social media obviously we're not just considering our physical and our private footprint anymore we're considering our digital footprint and i'm just wondering i mean this is another example but in this world of mass surveillance how does the veil configure identity differently with regards to digital spaces as sort of a juxtaposition that's an excellent question you know and a more recent example of this is that okay so recently elections were held in afghanistan and one of the ways the u.s has spent i guess I'm not exactly sure how this is being done, but there was an export and a provision of technology to Afghans such that they could, uh, so that the that this facial recognition software was provided to, to, I guess, polling stations in Afghanistan, women's, women's <sighs> polling stations. And of course, I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you that, that the women who came to vote did not want to participate in this. And I and I and I, I guess I do understand a little bit of how they were thinking about this. I mean, I guess there's a, a question of, you know, how do you ensure that a woman is only voting once and uh, the, the, those sorts of considerations, which are a little bit difficult because if the women are not literate, 
then they can't sign their name. They can provide a thumbprint, but then that thumbprint, there's no way of putting that together fast in that moment to make sure that it's the same thumbprint that you have in the record. So anyway, so I, I, so I guess I, I can see how they thought that this was a really great idea, but uh, you know, Afghan women weren't buying it. First of all, a lot of them wear the burqa and it's intimidating enough to go vote than to be, you know, told. And it, and that isn't that interesting because, and, and I write about this in the book is that here you have uh, people that, you know, because they will have been told that, oh, well, you know, archaic and pre-modern and not civilized and, they have so they have such a more uh, nuanced and reflective interaction with technology than we do where we're you know providing our face everywhere to everyone i also saw recently like this company that's providing i mean it's not a veil but it is covering up it does cover up parts of your, your face and they're calling it face jewelry. So essentially to so that, you know, they're they're not getting your face data wherever you go and and, and you can be monitored through uh, facial recognition. So when you think about all of those things, you know, there there's an aspect of the veil that that does sort of have the ability to protect your privacy in a way. And it's not entirely unexpected because in in the in the countries where veil exists, part of the reason for the veil less discussed is this very stringent boundary between the public and the private. So so that the veil is a way to extend what would be in what would otherwise be veiled, not in a literal sense, but just kept in the private sphere out of view. I write in the book, for instance, about the arrangement of our of our house uh, or the school that I went to, which was an all-girls school, where nobody was veiling, but the fact that there were no men present and that no men were allowed and there was a strict segregation of space meant that we were veiled in a way because... It's the space that functioned as a veil, is the separation of space. And that is not something I think that is considered very often, you know, in terms of the mobility of women and, and how the veil can serve as a means to enlarge the radius of their activity than what it was. And so there's a very functional, pragmatic aspect of the veil that pertains to that, that I think is not the one that people think of immediately when they're considering whether or not they support or don't support the veil or what their position might be in response to, say, the French government or the Swiss government or, you know, or even here in the United States. Exactly. I mean, you're right. It's, it is pretty special in this day and age to have an object where you can opt for some semblance of privacy when it feels like privacy doesn't exist in any form. And, and the ability for Muslim women who don the veil to opt to access that privacy is considered empowering in some contexts, as you write, but it 
constitutes it as a subversive object in other contexts. Could you discuss a little bit how the veil has been contested as a subversive object in Western countries, both, you know, like in a legal sense, but also in the national security debates? Well, I think that, you know, the premise that comes up most most commonly in the West in response to Muslim women, say, in particular, refusing to, to remove the veil is that in, when, when you are in public space, it's the kind of social contract that you have in inhabiting public space is that you should be recognizable so that if you can see me, I should be able to see you. And by varying in particular, uh, I mean, this argument is, is specific to the full face whale. By wearing a full face whale, that dimension of equality between the two parties, you know, that might, you might encounter the other person on the sidewalk, say, or on a train, that balance goes awry. You don't have to wear the veil to make, to, for that balance to go awry. I guess if you would ask me what my reservations were uh, about writing the book as a Muslim woman is that it's just yet another book about the veil that centers the veil as the uh, identifying fact or the identifying issue confronted by a Muslim woman. And it's not. But it is true that both sides, we, we, we live in a world where it has gained that significance. Right. I mean, what you're touching upon, it's, it's completely not the same thing at all. It sort of reminded me like when something like the veil or some object is, you have to have an opinion about it, whether you want to or not as a Muslim. And it sort of reminded me actually as a Jewish person that you have to have some relationship to Israel, whether you want to or not, and have some kind of political, uh, you know, opinion about it, and it constitutes your entire identity, and it, it can get it's so frustrating. And, and not, not only does it constitute your entire identity, there's very little room allowed for dynamism within your views about that. So, so you know, for instance, like if I at some point wore the veil, then it's just assumed that that's going to be my position. Or if I stop wearing the veil, that's going to be my position. As in, like, this is not a good thing. If you thought it was a good thing, then why aren't you wearing it? So, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of reductionism there, and 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 the frustration that you just ex- uh, expressed, I'm I'm glad you did because a huge number of young Muslim women, whether or not they wear the veil, feel that frustration because it's almost like if you're a Muslim minority within a Western country, then your identity as a Muslim woman has been distilled to that fact. And all sorts of assumptions derive from it. So if you meet me and I'm wearing the headscarf, then, oh, well, you must be kind of an orthodox Muslim and be more observant than someone else who doesn't wear the headscarf. You know, those things don't map in in the same way. You know, you could have someone who wears the headscarf and who is much more 
socially and politically liberal uh, than someone who doesn't wear the headscarf, you know, but is is extremely conservative in their views about religion or any other aspect of religious identity. So um, and 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 their politics, and that can get really frustrating, right? Because it means that if the second someone finds out you're Muslim, there's all these assumptions that have walked into the room before you. So either way. You're trying to, whether or not you're wearing the whale, you have all this work to do in terms of un, undoing those assumptions and be taken, you know, for yourself as opposed to what others, you know, um, um, as opposed to, you know, the sum total of all the assumptions that other people would have. And, and some of that, of course, is understandable in, in, with respect to the fact that you know, not most Americans have not met someone who's Muslim, let alone some a Muslim woman. You know, that there is that aspect of it. But at the same time, you know, the Americans have been waging war on Muslim countries now for 18 years. You know, Afghanistan was in 2001. And part of that whole, you know, the war drums leading to that invasion involved very pointed use of the veil as the center and focal form of oppression to the point that you know, Representative Carolyn Maloney, who was... She's my old rep. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> she, bought the, she bought a burqa onto the floor of the house and she put it on and then she talked about how oppressed she felt while she was wearing it. And, and, you know, so, so it, it's, it's also part of American history now in that sense, in that it was such an integral part. So even just on that basis, there is the necessity of understanding its dimensions better than Americans currently do. And it goes, uh, the other way too. I mean, you know, in terms of discussions about diversity and inclusion, have had the other, you know, uh, very kind of left organizations also kind of, you know, essentialize the veil in that. So if you're trying to take a group picture and you want to show how inclusive you are, it's not enough to just have a Muslim woman who is in the photograph, but you would, you know, the best ways to have a Muslim woman wearing the veil. So then you know, there's this tokenism that that the veil can kind of pander to, right? Because if you show a veiled woman, then wow, you're showing you're you're really something in terms of inclusion, because now you've included this veiled woman. But then the consequence of that, you know, to Muslims is that uh, you have this externally imposed definition of who's authentically Muslim, you know. So if you're not wearing the well, you're less authentically Muslim as a woman who's wearing the well. And that can be very frustrating for Muslim women, too, because, like I said, I mean, the ideas of piety or of, of authenticity, uh, there's no, I mean, you know, any the veil ultimately from, you know, where we began this discussion is an object. And uh, to give an object that degree of power is is unfair, you know, to the individual that may or may not be wearing it. But yeah, you know, we live in a visual culture. And as long as that 
that is developed more and more through social media that's that's increasingly focused on visual images you know i i expect that that this this controversy around the veil will likely continue yeah i mean it does really touch upon this other this other dimension of the veil of you know just existing as a woman especially with these overarching these hegemonic systems shaping the object of patriarchy and, and colonialism that you're basically damned if you do and damned if you don't as a Muslim woman in relation yeah. to this object. I mean, yeah, just a, a quick thing, for instance, I wanted to add. It's also, it's also a considered a expression of how free you are. So if you're wearing the headscarf, so this is on the other side. We talked about the left wanting, you know, to believe that women with the headscarf are more authentically Muslim. On the right here, even in the United States, the premise is, is that if you're wearing the veil, then someone must have forced you to wear it or you're somehow like more oppressed in your thinking and have, you know, to be freed and brought to the golden gates of civilization for you to realize that you don't have to do it. And, and that, that presumption is, is, is just as hurtful because it's kind of this idea that, oh, well, if you're, if you're doing something that's different, then it's because you've been forced. I mean, you know, it, it, it ignores the agency of the woman and it assumes that these dynamics of oppression are as simplistic as, oh, well, if she wears the veil, then certainly she's got a husband or a father or a brother that's forcing her to do it. Not that that does not happen, but, you know, it is true that that a good number of women choose to wear the veil. I think even the conservative critique of the veil is framed under the the blanket of quote-unquote feminism, right? What have been the feminist critiques of the veil and how have they been used with regards to things like the war on terror? I mean, uh, the, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to summarize all the feminist critiques of the veil, but the ones that I'm mo- most familiar with would, for instance, be the ones that suggest that, that you know, again, that there is this, that you show you're free. You have to throw off all religious and essentially religious identity because religion is you know whether it's islam or any other form of religion is a means in which men have enforced patriarchy on women and so to overthrow patriarchy then you have to get rid of all these religious and traditional and cultural forms of covering yourself and then of course there there are less kind of or, or I would say tacit critiques, which would be, for instance, I mean, you know, the, the National Organization of Women supported the war in Afghanistan. And, and that war, you know, among other things, did sort of take issue, like we just talked about, about women being made to wear the veil. There, and, and then, you know, there are other feminist organizations, for instance, that support other campaigns to abolish the veil in, in different parts of the world. Definitely within European feminism, there is, in France in particular, there are some feminists who've spoken out about 
the headscarf ban, but there are a tremendous amount of feminists who think that this sort of law is required for French Muslim girls to grow up to be free because otherwise their families and parents and brothers will all just keep oppressing them the veil. And the consequence of that will just be future generations that are continuing to wail. And and so there are these kind of very narrow ideas about this issue. And, you know, and, and I, I don't want to say all this as a kind of, you know, because, because there is an aspect of it where, say, if you are an American feminist, you think, okay, well, should I support women who wear the veil? Should I not support women who wear the veil? And I think that the best way to tackle that is to say that, you know, women should be allowed to wear or not wear whatever they want. And that there's all sorts of oppressions that are carried out on, on young girls within American culture that you know, are that we do look past. I mean, the sexualization of young girls in beauty pageants is, in my opinion, for instance, just as bad as the sexualization of, of little girls by forcing them to wear the veil. But of course, we give an inordinate amount of attention to the one that's Muslim and immigrant, and we give reality shows to the one that's, you know, white and American. So, so there is, there is an, a necessity, I feel, for American feminists to consider those double standards and look more deeply instead of just like, well, what do I think? Do, should people be allowed to do this or not? And the question, of course, is that it's not important what you think. It's important what Muslim women think. And in that sense, uh, perhaps an opinion, uh, on the issue is, you know, on, on, or, or an opinion on the issue when it's framed as you support or not support should not exist at all. You shouldn't have an opinion because it isn't something that implicates your identity in the way that it would perhaps, you know, the Muslim that you're, that you're considering. Right. It, it shouldn't be a question of should they be able to wear the veil or should they not be able to wear the veil? It should be fighting for a woman's right to choose ultimately. Precisely. precisely. Yeah. And I think, especially in this current political climate, I think it's very, I think as Americans, as leftist Americans, it's very hard to not, I mean, we have to be having a lot of difficult conversations right now. And I think it's pushed us, it's required us to have a certain kind of self-reflexivity and solidarity in this conversation, particularly with regards to feminism. I mean, you can't look and point at a Muslim, like a veiled woman and say she's oppressed and then live in this country where somebody like Brett Kavanaugh gets nominated to the Supreme Court and say that we're great. (laughs) Yes. No. And and if if you were to choose, quite honestly, I would say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for American Muslim women that are continuing to wear the veil within this political climate. And, you know, if if it were up to me, I guess, like, I yes, I do think that they deserve more support simply for the fact that the daily exhaustion of, of just wearing a garment where you are judged as constantly and consistently in such an Islamophobic, you know, political milieu it is something that deserves commendation. 
because because it takes a, a tremendous amount of bravery to do that and not be kind of cowed by all the Islamophobia that, you know, I mean, the, the one of the saddest moments that I've had in recent years was that was when I was at Jamal Friday prayer, uh, not long after President Trump was elected. And there were a, a, a number of women that had come in who wore headscarves and the best, you know, that the mosque could offer them was to sit is, is a free self-defense class. And at the time, perhaps because it hadn't sunk in, I was like, okay, well, that, that, that's, that's good. But you know, like in, in the months, like I said, in the months and years that have passed, the attacks against veiled Muslim women have risen. And they are now, like I said, face the most hate crimes of anyone in the U.S. because they are visibly wearing their identity. There are so many people who want to persecute that identity. So, you know, I mean, we do, of course, like I, there is our larger discussion that is essential. But then there are also these kind of urgent moments. And I do feel that we are in an urgent moment where women who really, you know, may not even have much of a kind of a political opinion regarding the current administration or not, are having, are, are, are being kind of pulled into this, this divisive political conversation in a very negative way. And I do think that they deserve the support of all Americans, uh, for, for that, for the fact that it shouldn't be so hard to just be able to live your truth and to be able to practice in the form you believe and to be able to dissent politically in the way that you want. So yeah, I wanted to make sure that I added a prescription, you know, for those, for those who wanted or would uh, be amenable to it about that and about our current moment. Mm. Yeah, I really love your epilogue for that reason, because you say, you know, I, you were getting this book published as Trump got elected. Right. And at the end, you sort of conclude that the the real veil was xenophobia. The real veil was nationalism and racism. Yes. And that, that kind of ties into this whole book. It, it's honestly one of the most autobiographical object lessons books that I've read. And in, in that way, it, I think it made it more poignant. But how was your experience uh, approaching an object, one that you have a personal relationship with, that you, and everything that you're talking about, you obviously experience on some kind of personal level. How was it writing about this object that's at the center of public discourse that is being contested more than ever, particularly in this oh, climate? It was a relief. It was a relief because... You know, I wanted this book to be something that I essentially could hand to someone who asks me about the veil and say, this is what I think. Because I felt so flummoxed by questions about the veil in the run up to when I started to write this book, because I, I just didn't feel like I could encapsulate you know, in a conversation or a talk or a discussion, all the different dimensions of this that I think are important and require consideration 
by anybody who's curious about the veil. You know, I, I, I just, I guess in that sense, I, I wanted it some, to be this kind of, this little book that anybody could read. They, you know, didn't have to have an academic back, background. They didn't have to have, you know, any kind of background in Islam or politics, but a book for just about anybody who would be interested in. For me, the personal aspects of it were, in, were, were important because, you know, that is how I come to this object. I've had to, consider and reconsider and reconsider again my own relationship to the veil and I probably will for as long as I live you know I and so it was important in that sense to present the dynamism of my own views within the book you know my own views from when I was a schoolgirl in Karachi to when I was a bride to right now you know, to the to the hospital, you know, and my mother was was in the ICU to show the fact that this is not a static object where and, and Muslim any Muslim woman's relation to it is is similarly not static. It's it's very, very dynamic. It's it evolves based on her own identity and experience and where she might be in her in her life and not you know, not only geographically, but where she might be, both in terms of her, you know, whether she's a mother or whether she's a, a young student or, and all of those aspects. So, you know, it, I just wanted it to be that kind of a simple, interesting book that both showed people how this issue has operated within the life of an ordinary Muslim woman like myself. And then, of course, all the other things that that woman might have to consider that also exist in the world around her. So that interplay of like the personal and subjective with the larger world in which you find yourself, it was definitely a central goal of mine to to consider that. And for that reason, I, I found it to be one of the more most compelling object lessons books that I've read because I, I really do love it when people use personal essay to talk about these public objects. So, I mean, thank you so much. Um, oh, goodness. Thank you. And thank you for, you know, listening to me talk about this and not storming off. You know? <laughs> no. you know? I, I never thought I could, I could. I never thought that anything I was saying was, was quite as, you know, in me, <laughs> I to make someone want to do that, but no. not that you said made me want to storm off. At okay, that will <laughs> be true of the listeners too. That's actually all we have time for. I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, for everybody listening, you can find Rafia's book on Bloomsbury's website. It's Bail under the Object Lesson series. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. You've been incredibly patient with me. In setting this up and I think your your questions were tremendously thought-provoking for me and I must say like some of them I hadn't quite uh, considered before this interview so I thank you for that and thank you. Thank you.